a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. I'm your host, Nathan Romas. My guest today is Sergeant Ryan Ferry of the Edmonton Police Service Gang Suppression Team. Sergeant Ryan Ferry is in his 17th year with the Edmonton Police Service. He has worked in several positions, including patrol, White Avenue Beats, Public Safety Compliance Team, and the Hospitality Policing Unit. Also, he worked as a detective in Downtown Division and supervised the Crime Management Team, and now the Gang Suppression Team. Then in his spare time, because he's got so much of it. Sergeant Ferry also presents several internal and external courses. As well, he co-teaches a university course on the history of gangs and effective gang intervention strategies. Welcome. Thanks very much, appreciate it. So, for full disclosure, Ferry is my current supervisor. <laughs> this is not why he's one of the first episodes. But uh, it's just the way the timing of when I schedule people in. Uh, he was the most readily available. So he's one of the first. So uh, By default, yes. Yes, by <laughs> default. <laughs> so let us start at the beginning. Uh, tell everybody about Baby Fairy. Baby Fairy. Uh, so I, I appreciate the platform. I, I think that this is... Uh, this is a unique way to, to reach people, and uh, if people can kind of understand where we come from and uh, why we do this job, then hopefully they'll kind of get a lens or a, a view into to what it is we're doing uh, here and, and and why we do what we do and, and what the desired outcomes are. And, and maybe if people are able to kind of humanize uh humanize us uh, and we can humanize ourselves to people, we can maybe... Uh, you know, reach our, our comic goals a little bit better. So, like, uh, for me, <clears throat> uh, where to begin, right? I was a, I was a, a pretty typical uh, kid. I, I'll, I'll say it for the viewers right now, and we don't have any video, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, uh, currently I'm 44 years old. I'm a white male. I, I have uh, uh, Irish and, and uh, Scandinavian uh, roots. Um, I am uh, quite certainly from the lower, uh, significantly lower middle class um, as, a, as a result of a, a bunch of different fi family dynamics. So I was, I was born uh, and raised originally in, in Edmonton, uh, which is where we happen to be policing from. And then uh, my father worked in the oil patch um, and had uh, engineering background and civil engineering background and uh, oil fields uh, and sales. And he uh, ended up um, uh, starting a company uh, related to oil and gas. And we moved from Edmonton into the small town of Devon. And I spent my early formative years in Devon uh, from the time I was, uh, I, th I think, seven, seven or eight until, until my parents split in in uh, my my early teen years and so um my 
my formative years are in this idyllic little suburb, just just kind of to the southwest of the major city. Uh, I could I could ride my bike throughout the town, and and you know, uh, all of my friend group were within a ten block radius, and we would play until the sun went down, and and oftentimes and uh, beyond that. Um, you get the typical like mom yelling out the front steps, "Jimmy dinner," and that would be the 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 dinner bell for everybody to start going. And then uh, my life changed quite drastically. I have, a, I have a younger sibling as well. I have a younger brother um, who's who's seven years younger than than me, and I have an older half brother uh, from my uh, my pop's first marriage. Um, and and so the older brother was really ostensibly out of our lives because of the divorce and a whole bunch of other kind of family dynamics. And uh, when when mom and dad split, it was it was due to a bunch of uh, and and in in parlance, uh, uh, you know, apropos of of today's sort of uh, you know awareness. There's a bunch of trauma informed or trauma uh, affected or trauma influenced. Uh, actions and events uh that happened uh, to my father and 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 he carried them on uh with him into parenthood and adulthood and so uh he he was a long-term uh addict he was uh he uh he was a drinker he was an alcoholic he suffered uh significant emotional and physical uh, uh abuse at the hands of his alcoholic parents so it's it's generational for sure and uh, so uh, there was a confluence of factors that happened to my pops uh, uh, right around that time I was entering into teenhood, where he lost uh, lost a business, uh, lost his uh, his parents uh, uh, to illness. He had a, a friend commit suicide. So there there was just this trifecta, this perfect storm where his uh, his life just hit a, a giant shit storm, and then that that related to our life then being a giant shitstorm. So uh, they, they, they separated and divorced, and we uh, moved into the city uh, where I lived primarily with my mom for the, the remainder of my teenage years, and dad was in and out. Um, he'd be on the wagon back in our lives, and we'd be okay. And then whatever would come up for him, and he'd be back on the bottle, and he'd be out for uh, months to years. <clears throat> so um, in growing up, I moved from this this... Uh, school where the entire town's elementary school population was at one school uh, and and the prospect of moving on to high school was well that's the one and only high school that you go to and and, and you, you earn these social relationships um, we go to the south side of town and I, I find myself plunged into mill woods mm-hmm. and I, I essentially become a latchkey kid because mom's got to work and dad's kind of in and out so I I I make some really, really uh, fortunate friendships with some relatively normal dudes in, in my junior high experience. They kind of take me under their wing. Um, and, and I was uh, essentially kind of de facto adopted by a couple of different families. Um, and, and, uh, um, it, it was, it was amazing how some of those social relationships shaped my, my future, like high school choices and stuff like that. My parents, did the best they could. My dad was full of <clears throat> his own demons, but he never ever brought his turmoil and his conflict in terms of like anger and, and violence or anything like none of that was directed towards uh, the kids or mom. Uh, he had a, a monster chain down in the in the basement 
um, and that anger was always kind of there, and so you were aware of it. And and the the quintessential like, kids scared of dad. Kids not scared of dad because dad's gonna haul off and and wail on them, but but dad might come unhinged and you could see that kind of anger so whether or not that kind of um formed part of my early uh worldview of fatherhood or masculinity or adulthood i I, i'm not educated enough to kind of self-diagnose but um because i had friends in these in these communities um my future was really up in the air and my parents did the best they could but weren't really able to stay on top of my my uh, my social circle, my school exploits. I was a smart kid. Junior high, I, I won like uh, uh, awards for for uh, uh, French language, and I was in the top probably uh, 80th percentile for like math and, and STEM fields and stuff like that. I was doing great academically and athletically and socially, so I was kind of hands off. And then when it came time to select a school going forward, I. I didn't talk to my parents about where I was going to go to high school. I just looked at my friends and said, hey, where are you going? And I, I wanted to play football. I knew I wanted to play football. I was a big football fan. I, I grew up playing hockey and stuff like that. But I thought football was going to be my pursuit. And so um, uh, in in the area where we lived, uh, J. Percy Page didn't have a football program. I wasn't going to go to the Catholic school. Uh, uh, Bonnie Doon was not an option. Wagner was a, a technical school for, for uh, uh kids that are academically challenged. And so McNally was the closest uh, place that had a great football program. So I said, I'm going to McNally. And I informed my family afterwards. And I I only had two or three friends that were going from my school up into McNally. And so uh, we were in Mill Woods. I bussed it to McNally every single day. And and that really shaped um, my high school experience because I had um, tremendous tremendous uh respect and contact with some uh, incredible faculty there um they uh they 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 really did a good job of it is a relatively small school in the in the context of uh edmonton-based high schools most of the high schools are are in the thousands of students mid thousand to to higher thousands so, uh, like harry Ainley would have 2500 kids or whatever and, and uh mcnally had sub 1000 we were in the 900 range, so it was a relatively small school, and uh, I had a, a great experience with my uh, all my my phys ed experiences. Uh, I almost flunked out of uh, grade 10. Uh, uh, Bussing to school uh, was challenging to me, and I skipped a lot of classes because I was smart enough where I was usually able to get away with never doing homework. Um, I. Uh, really great reading retention and really horrible uh, self-discipline when it comes to doing the the work in behind the scenes. So you lost the 5% attendance mark? (laughs) I remember that in high school. The special, yeah, yeah, the special uh, thanks for showing up. Uh, (laughs) I I found myself plummeting from the 80s and 90s and down to like the 50s uh, in some of the the subjects. I, I legitimately had a pillow and a blanket in a spare locker at school and I would go and skip class and, and kind of hang out. So I was, I was on the precipice of being one of the, one, one of the dropout losers. Uh, and I had some friends that would facilitate that. They're just good time guys and smoking dope and, and getting drunk a whole bunch. Uh, and, uh, I, I don't have any one particular, um, uh, 
person that I can point to that kind of pulled me out of it. But I can say that my, my experiences on the, on the student athlete side kind of helped me gain some purpose and be like, oh, okay, I got to stop messing around. So I, uh, he, he's, he's famous in Edmonton coaching circles, Jim Gilfillan. Uh, they named an entire football conference after him. He was teaching for, I don't know, 900 years. Uh, Jim Gilfillan was one of my early social teachers. Um, uh, a bunch of the coaches really looked out for me. Uh, I don't know if they had had a conversation ahead of time and said, hey, this kid's uh, coming off the rails, but he's he's a good kid or whatever. So um, in, in, in my high school experience, I had, I had really honestly a, a great time. So uh, I ended up, uh, falling into rugby and that was a, a secondary passion and I was I, I had a great time I was I was the captain of the football team captain of the rugby team I returned for a second uh, uh, high school year um, and I always kind of had ambitions um, to to you know pursue higher level athletics but it was never guided by any sort of like real vision or or you know understanding of of how to translate early success towards any sort of like later pursuits i had no idea about university i knew you could get scholarships oh, or you could you could uh, kind of pursue uh, athletics in in a broader stage but I, I didn't really have a plan so i attended some some football camps and some some scouting uh, pieces but all of my efforts had been a little bit too little too late um i had some uh, offers from some universities uh, uh eastern canada and uh and i had a i had a friend um i had a crush on her she ended up being uh the person I dated and later, later married, we were, we were friends and our friend, our families became friends. Um, she, she kind of, um, helped me navigate the academic side. Um, but even then I didn't really have a plan per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I ended up thinking, you know what, um, if I'm, if I'm going to go to school, I'm probably, I, I think I had a great time, uh, with my, um, with my teachers and my coaches. So I, I thought a, a career plan would be in, in teaching. So I applied to U of A um, and I, I got in to U of A after I, I had taken a year off. Um, and throughout all that time, you know, uh, I, I look back on kind of my experiences. I, I held a job from the time I was, I think my first job was 14 and I was part-time employed throughout my, my childhood and throughout the teen years. I, I worked as a bus boy. I worked at gas stations. I worked at um, uh, fast food places. I, I worked at NW for two and a half weeks. <laughs> I had a variety of experiences. Um, my dad was in and out of our lives. Um, uh, it, was, it was an interesting time in that, that I would financially contribute to my family and dad would sometimes... Uh, he's passed now, so I can, I can kind of speak about him candidly, but he, he would, uh, hit me up for money. Uh, I remember being 14, 15 years old, trying to save up for something, uh, or, or take girl on date or something like that. And then dad would come and clean me out and be like, Hey, I'm, I'm short this month. Can you, can you help? And the, the 300 bucks that I had saved were going towards the heat bill or whatever. So it was a really unpredictable time. I think the most telling stat out of my, my childhood was um, about my, my future kind of, not instability, but my, my future kind of uh, experiences and how, how my childhood shaped kind of my perception is when, when I made the police application, 
I lived in um, 21 homes in 24 years. So with mom, uh, we'd, we'd move, we'd do another rental, we'd uh, move midway through the year, dad would come, we'd get evicted. Like, there was a lot of instability there. So um, This was all within Edmonton? This is all within Edmonton, yeah. Wow. Yeah, there was, a, there was a lot. And so um, uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't bad, it wasn't good, it was just normal. That's, that's the normal I grew up in. And we'd move twice, sometimes three times in a year. Um, so there was a, there was a lot of change and there was a lot of just adapting, I guess is, is kind of what my experience was. So then, um, I did a, a year at uh, university of Alberta and, uh, and I, I had great experiences there. It was a, a really good time. I was a, I was a football player. I, I got selected for, um, uh, I, I made the, the, the the senior cut for the the football team and and this was I think it was ninety six, um, I got selected at the very same time uh, for uh, the uh, the Canadian um, uh, under nineteen men's national team for rugby, and uh, and and uh, the only reason I, I ended up making that team was because a, a coach here in Alberta. Uh, Kirby White um, recognized that hey this kid's actually pretty good at this sport you should maybe come out to this team and this tryout and I, I had some really really great experiences uh, through again athletics uh, through the Druids uh, rugby program uh, that operates out of Sherwood Park that is essentially responsible for delivering coaching at a high school level too I, I had incredibly lucky uh, encounters with people that were invested that were uh, giving of their time and their expertise and their understanding and modeling and so uh, through a series of of universe bending coincidences I ended up getting selected for this under 19 uh, tour to Wales and I I skipped out on school I was like hey I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a shot um, uh, I had no experience in terms of uh, national or international rugby um in terms of um measuring myself against uh what an elite level kind of competition would be i had the the guys that were local i I did really well here in in town but edmonton isn't a hotbed of international rugby either so no it is not no it's it's tough to really kind of gauge yourself so i i went over and we got just greased shellacked by by uh, the teams over uh, over in the UK, but it was a great experience, and a lot of the guys I ended up playing with um, went on to play national team and, and uh, professional rugby. Um, so I, I had such a great experience with that, and, and part of why I bring that up is because football was my first real love in terms of uh, pursuit and sport, but my lack of discipline and my inability to uh, I I was a practice demon. I I would. I would practice with the team and leave the team and do all those things. If it was practice time, I was there 100% dedicated, committed. But when it came to the off season and the team time to working on myself and having any semblance of like, uh, here's a workout plan and here's here's what you should be following, it, it went right out the window. There was zero consistency in my life and I, I had zero self-discipline that I imposed on myself. So um, trying to play football as a middle linebacker at 195 pounds i was undersized i had the brains for it and i had a really 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 great experience with uh, some of the coaches and they they tried to get me in that direction but it 
I was, in, in retrospect, I was understized, and I would have gotten there had I stuck with it, but here's this national team program on the rugby side where I was uh, also doing really, really well. And it, it just, it wasn't an easier path. It was just a, it was a path where I was getting that immediate success. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so I ended up giving rugby a shot. And I remember uh, um, I, I had a coach, uh, Mr. McIntyre, he looked at me. He he was my high school coach, and he went on to be the University of Alberta. A bunch of my coaches went on to coach at the U of A. And he looked at me. He said, "Just promise me one thing, man. Just just promise me you're not going to be one of those rugby bums." And that I that I remember that sticking with me because a bunch of the guys from McNally had gone on to play on the West Coast and and have a great time, and they were. 30 35 40 years old working at restaurants playing rugby touring western canada just being burnout drunks <laughs> and not really aspiring to a whole lot so uh that kind of stuck in my mind um i did uh the first year at U, U of A and um it uh it, it wasn't really doing it for me i was still at home i was still kind of uh, participating in the in the weird dance that my parents were doing so uh, on a whim I reached out to University of Victoria and I reached out to the coach there and I said hey this is who I am I'm interested in maybe coming out in a so I reached to, out to him in the summer of 99 right after I, I finished my my uh, first year at U of A and I was thinking about like the 2000 2001 year not the 99 2000 I was thinking you know what uh, is there is there an appetite for having me come out and and how could I you know blaze a path towards uh, getting out there and he uh, came back and must have done some checking on me and he said well why don't you come out now I can get you and your grades are good enough I can get you into school now we'll get you whatever program you want just come and play rugby now and I think I had I think I had five weeks before the start of school or six weeks before the start of uh, school year. And it was a spur of the moment. It's uh, like they do with uh, some of the recruits, right? They call you up and they're like, "You got a, you got a week to get here." You have a space uh, <laughs> now. The job is yours, and get your ass in gear. So uh, I really had nothing tying me here. I, I was dating at the time, and um, and I was I I had no other prospects beyond. I, I think I want to give this athletics thing a shot. So I went. I, I got into the program that I wanted. Um, I got the classes that I wanted, and he put me on the list. And I, I remember showing up for my first week of, uh, I, 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 honestly, the first week of school, I got situated with, uh, we had uh, distant family friends that were willing to put me up. Uh, they had a son my age somewhere else, and so they had room in their house. And it was a horrible experience. They lived they lived like an hour and a half bus ride away, and they were, they were wonderful people, but they were on the island, and they were um, really not accommodating um, uh, to, uh, like, it was just a weird, bizarre experience. They, they opened up their home to me, but I was limited in, in being able to come and go. Um, and they, they monitored my phone calls and my, my garbage, uh, uh output. So they treated you like one of their own, <laughs> but they had just excessive rules. It was weird. Yeah. It was a weird, like I, I'm an adult now and I'm a university student. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, teenager living in an adult body ridiculous decision making for sure i don't have any money and and it was just it was not a great fit so i ended up midway through the first semester i i ended up crashing on a buddy's couch 
um, he played for one of the rugby teams out there and he's like, yeah, man, just come and hang out. So I, I ended up getting a place like a block and a half away from campus and I lived the rugby bomb life. Uh, I did well enough in all my classes and I had a great time out there. I, I spent, uh, three, three, uh, four years out there and had a great time. You should be able to finish a degree in four years, but not this guy. I, I lived the Van Wilder life. I took a reduced class load. I was still full time but I took a reduced class load and I worked uh, throughout that time. I was a, I was a, a bouncer at a, at a, a couple of local clubs, um, the university bar and a club downtown. And I, 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 I took to it. Uh, I had originally got a little bit of experience as a 19 year old here in Edmonton. I got my first bouncing job before I left town. And, uh, and I just, that, that uh, matched up and married my demands of, of like school and academic and athletic balance. And uh, in the summer times, I worked at the kids camps put on by the university. So I was, I was up at, uh, I can't tell you, like seven in the morning. So I worked all night until four in the morning, uh, uh, telling other human beings what to do. And then I, I, blast home, get a couple hours of sleep, and then zombie my way into um, campus. And I would watch kids uh, as early as like 7.30 in the morning, I think it was. And then we'd do kids camps, uh, sports camps all day in the summer sun. And then I'd get a little bit of uh, a nap in in the afternoon and then back to work uh, that night uh, between that and practice. Like I said, you, you've had a lot of free time your whole <laughs> entire life. Right? It doesn't exist. Uh, we worked hard and and that's one thing I, I look at my dad and he was a worker and he, he was uh, if I if I reflect on him he was a workaholic too alcoholic workaholic uh, lived at the lived at, at work and lived through his work uh, he was a he was a good father um, and and he loved his kids you could tell he gave a shit but he couldn't put down that work side of things and he he didn't have a whole lot of balance so that, maybe that rubbed off. I hope some of the good stuff rubbed off and I'm, I'm able to kind of be responsible in my own life uh, and, and not live it that much. But yeah, it's, it's been a trend for, for me and my, my upbringing. So um, throughout the, my time on the coast, I, I had always intended to do something around athletics, probably coaching. There was a prospect of, of doing some professional sports. Um, and, uh, and I had really great experiences with cops out there. And uh, I can't remember his name. I think his name was Gil out there. Uh, he was working for uh, Victoria PD. He suggested, he was the first real person that suggested policing as a, as a career opportunity. He tried to campaign for me to leave school early, in fact, and said, what are you doing with yourself after this? So after you're done school or come down right now, apply. Um, I, up, up until this point, though, you'd never thought about policing or is I think, something across your path? Yeah, I, I think policing was always kind of this, uh, in my mind, maybe a possibility, kind of cool. Oh, I remember uh, when I was, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe 13, 14 years old, I was at a school, my, my younger brother's school, and the tactical team had come in uh, to do like some sort of demonstration at his school. And I thought, man, those, those guys are cool and th there was a general sense of of uniform kind of um uh, uh service jobs as a as a cool career like some sort of like military or fire i i at one point thought maybe i'll be a fighter pilot or something like i don't know if it was influenced by top gun but uh but that was always a general sentiment but it was never like a 
I'm going to do this as a career option and, and seriously look into it. So when Gil uh, mentioned that to me, I don't know if he's still working on the job or not, but um, I seriously considered it and I thought, you know, that could, that could be really fantastic. And I, I, I think that the clincher for me, uh, uh, the, the um, kind of what brought me back to Edmonton was my, my now ex. Um, she was really, really connected to family here in Edmonton and her dad had a heart attack and we couldn't get off the island. She hated being there. She was, there was a lot of uh, dynamic and stuff uh, that, that kind of, you reflect on it now. Oh, you were miserable. You didn't like there uh, for a variety of reasons, but that's why we're exes. So uh, she hated it out there. And what kind of the straw that broke the camel's back in that re- sense of regard was uh, uh, her dad had a heart attack back here in town and we couldn't get off the island. There was no flights leaving that night. So he could have died and she would have been stuck with me and all these stupid people from Victoria and the stupid Victoria. Like, it just it wasn't happening. And I think it cost us $800 to fly out the next day last minute. Each. Each. It was criminal. And so uh, she was like, you know what, I can't do this. So she moved back here, which means I moved back here. I transferred back to UVA. And I was going to still pursue teaching. So I got into the, there's a combined program. It's a, it's a five-year condensed phys ed, ed, double degree program. I did my first year of the ed part. And I hated it. I hated it. I, just the, the sense of um, who would be my, my, um, my peers. I didn't feel like I fit in with them. I, I give all the credit in the world to teachers. It is a very hard profession. Um, it, you're more the seem uh, you'd be the more the hands-on type to learn something, right? You're talking like academic versus very much so. The, so that yeah, that, being it, out there in the field, in theory, you know, and and uh, my experiences with with um, uh, summer camps and childhood education and early childhood stuff, like I had a bunch of different experiences with kids. I knew I was good with kids. But the structure of, of teaching to a specific curriculum and and looking at the prospects of that as a career just didn't sit right with me at all and so uh, I think I originally applied in 2003 2004 to the EPS um, I had I had great experiences again with the cops um, great experiences uh, with with uh, the security uh, kind of aspect and so I applied um, I remember walking into the recruiting office downtown in a shorts and a t-shirt or something and, and asking about that I had no sense of regard for maybe present yourself as a professional as a potential recruit candidate and so the guy looked at me and said well here's a, here's a here's an info package you dummy <laughs> um, and then I got informed that I wasn't three years clear of of what the minimum requirements were at the time for uh, like criminal activity so a collection of idiotic college age uh, hijinks plagued me for a very short period of time. So we had stolen, me and my idiot friends had stolen a six foot long um, stuffed bull from a grocery store in Victoria. When, uh, when I was going to say, that, that sounds like something right out of Van Wilder. It was 100%. So the the genesis of that, the, the, the nexus of that was... Um, 
You're not still a suspect for this. <laughs> I have since returned all items. And that was a condition of my hiring with EPS was to make uh, amends with the places that I had wronged and, and uh, uh, commit some uh, donations um, and, and, you know, take responsibility for some of my actions. So, yeah, 100%. I, has, I was having a conversation with a group of the guys uh, because I worked at a retail job. It was a sport check and we had um, a loss prevention officer come and give a, a, a discussion on theft and how easy it was to, to miss people who are, are professional thieves. And they showed us a video of a guy walking out the front doors uh, during the $99 ski sale. So it's it's pandemonium inside the store. $900 ski boots are going for 99 bucks and skis and whatever else. This guy came in and brought a grubby old pair of shoes, uh, tried on some of these super elite mega downhill ski racing boots or whatever it was, and then threw his grubby shoes into the ski boot box and then clumped, clumped, clumped right out the front door. And like the cashier was like, bye, have a nice day. And he walked right out of this place with a thousand bucks on his feet. And so I was telling that story to the guys at, at, I can't remember, somebody's house in Victoria. And they said, bullshit. I said, no, guys, I, I'm telling you, I could, I could probably steal something right in front of everybody uh, and they wouldn't notice. So the buddy, the bull, the, from, the, from the meats department at whatever uh, grocery store <laughs> around the corner from my buddy's place, they said, yeah, this is ridiculous. You're making it up. I said, no, I could walk out of here with that bull under my arm and, and just act like I belonged, and they wouldn't even notice. So I did just that, and I walked right out the door, and, and nobody stopped me. So we stole a, a six-foot-tall gumball machine from a Subway restaurant and a, and a box of... Um, uh, focaccia bread from a local coffee house <laughs> from right at the front counter. Juvenile, idiotic things, nothing not criminal mastermindy, but I wasn't clear of any of that behavior uh, to put in my application. So that was early on in my university experience. And so 2005, I put in, or I, like the, the next opportunity was six months later, still within 2004. I put in for the job, um, and I was I was deferred. I was deferred for three years because my recruiter uh, thought I was a, probably thought I was an idiot, and uh, maybe maybe juvenile or maybe not mature enough or, or anything. I was twenty seven at the time. I got married, and uh, we didn't have kids yet. <clears throat> um, I got deferred for three years, and that was a pretty big blow um, to the ego and to the the kind of the sense of well, what now. And, and I considered, we, I talked to my family and, and we had considered like, what, what are the options here? You get a three-year deferral and that's a long time. Um, I had decided that once, uh, once my, my mind was made up on the career path, I needed to figure out where I was going to do that. And so policing was going to be it for me. And I remember considering fire. And then people at the time who had seen me and known me growing up, and uh, apparently I'm, I'm good with people and I'm a bit of a storyteller and I, I, I've had some luck in getting um, compliance in, in crazy situations. It has suited me well. And I was considering fire and then somebody said, you know, Ferry, you can't, you can't convince a fire to just settle down and stop. You can't, you can't, you know, talk your way into or out of a fight with a fire it's it's it is what it is and so i i do better with people and i think that's the right call I, that when you boil it down i do better with people the physical stuff is fine and i'm capable of it but the people are who i connect with and so uh, so at that time uh 
what did the application process kind of involve or what did it look like back yeah. in so 04, in, in 04, 04 uh, I think the application package was 72 pages all in. It was something you printed off of the website. I think you can go into the recruiting office and get an application process or package. And it was a bunch of pre-lined, um, pre-written printed forms. And it was, um, tell us about everything bad you've ever done in your entire life and why. So this is the personal disclosure the, this that they is the, the PDF, still yeah. do to this day. Correct. Tell us everything tell us everything and it's so it's a pretty intimidating package when it you're was looking at that it's it a was lot. something that that i wasn't prepared for i thought generally um it was going to be fairly intrusive but i had i had no realization for what it went into your financial history sexual history uh criminal associations your your living situations 24 houses in 21 years or 21 houses in 24 years um Everything and everything. Uh, and what surprised me was give us the dates and the reasons for why you did all this. And I, man, that blew me away. So you had to do that for the 21 addresses? Correct. <laughs> the, so I came back with 21 addresses and this is where I lived. And I found myself driving around town. Uh, I, I was lucky to have kept some correspondence in my Victoria time. I had some some residences there as well, couch surfing and whatnot. But it, it really didn't paint a flattering picture of me. And so I was pretty grateful, actually, for the ability to explain myself. Um, the, the recruiter that I ended up having, um, who ended up deferring me, uh, I found out after the fact, he, he went on to, to be the boss of our professional standards branch and some other places. He ended up quitting in controversy because he had done some uh, inappropriate things on the job. <laughs> and so that was a little bit of a coup and a victory for myself. I was, I was kind of actually satisfied to hear that. Um, so I, I, got, I got deferred. Uh, this, this package was handwritten. And I didn't make a copy of it before handing it in. So, oh, no. so you, you get these questions like, "Hey, tell me about this thing." And I, I remember, I wrote, "What? Wait!" Uh, and I would need a second to kind of. So I, I looked, I, I looked unprepared and unprofessional is, is what it ultimately came across as. So, um, I remember thinking about you know what my career path was going to be, and and policing was definitely going to be it. And and where am I going to do policing? So. I considered other uh, municipal forces, so Calgary, Vancouver, uh, back to Victoria. Um, the RCMP were last on my list. And I think what generally formed uh, that, that kind of assessment on my behalf was, um, was the likelihood of moving and the potential for being able to be moved anywhere across the country it didn't really appeal to me. I think municipal policing, city policing, urban policing was going to be in the cards for me. It just depended on where I was going to go. So nothing against the RCMP. It just it, it wasn't a, a, a favorable sort of organization uh, for me and in my, my prospects at the time. So um, I, I essentially said, fuck it, I'm going to get on with Edmonton, whether it come hell or high water, that's going to be it for me. And so um, I, um, I ended up deciding to go back to school, finish my degree. So I, I got a, a degree in, in physical education. Essentially, it's now been converted to uh, a, a bachelor in uh, kinesiology. Mm -hmm. That's what my degree equivalent is. <clears throat> and in order to complete the degree at the time at the University of Alberta, you had to do a practicum. <clears throat> so some practicums are with like city-run uh, fitness facilities or whatever. And I happened to be going through this, <clears throat> pardon me, going through this 
I remember this legal size box full of file folders of, of uh, files of uh, potential um, uh, practicums. And I pulled one out that says Edmonton Police Service. And it was with the fitness unit. So it was, it was working for the city of Edmonton, uh, for the Edmonton Police Service, as, a, as a, basically an assistant to who at the time was uh, Dr. David Wilds. Uh, Dr. Dave Wiles was uh, um, legendary within uh, the police service. They called him Dr. Death because he, 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 he was so hard on, on recruit classes, but he, he, he maintained um, some, some pretty uh, um, significant policies in terms of the testing standards um, to, to get on with the EPS. So there was men's and women's uh, fitness uh, standards, and they were proportionally very, very hard. Uh, and we could get into, like, gender uh, performance under physical tests and stuff like that. But for men and women, those test standards were really, really high. And uh, the, the workout facilities and stuff like that within the EPS, while, while not given time on the job to work out, there was a, a culture of fitness. Um, and so the practicum was basically being his lackey and entering data into his computer. And I remember uh, saying, well, I'm, I'm going to go and get my practicum there. So I, I went and interviewed with Dave Wiles, and he hired me essentially on the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we had a great experience. He was such a gruff, gruff uh, but wonderfully warm-hearted uh, uh, man. Uh, he he, uh, I'm a bigger dude. I'm I'm six two, and I, at that time I was I was running about two twenty, two twenty five. And uh, and his his affection, affectionate name for me was Bucket Ass. Here comes old Bucket Ass. <laughs> you gotta turn sideways to get in the door, don't you? <laughs> I just think if you said that nowadays. <laughs> I don't think it would be as well received. And and uh, and, and at the time. It was it was uh, hilarious to me, but I had never been subjected to forms of sort of like discrimination or something like that. So I, I don't know if he if he reserved that for just guys like me who had had a, a different experience. But uh, I I owe that guy my career because then I got to work in the police service and people saw that I wasn't a, a, a child, I wasn't a criminal, I wasn't a, a, a dummy. I had a, a a history, and I had to be accountable for that history. But I I made uh, a lot of professional, um, deep seated uh, connections with people within the police service. So uh, I'm fortunate. Certainly, I'm fortunate. I I got that job as a practicum on my own merits, with my own smarts, and with my own experience, and with my own uh, with my own. Uh, 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 history that I had carved out. I was a decent student by that time. I was doing all my homework, and mm-hmm. I was—I I think I warranted the selection. Um, but after that, I got my foot in the door, and people were able to to kind of uh, assess my character. And so I was granted um, a, an opportunity to reapply with the police service uh, with a different file manager, and they hired me. So my my three-year deferral was up in the year, basically. I, I got on, I, I did a couple of uh, different kind of interview processes, um, and I, I, I ended up being to class in 2005, September of 2005. And uh, class experience was, was different for me because I had helped train recruit, recruit classes, and I had kind of seen behind the curtain. And so the training staff, I was working beside them 
a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago. And then uh, here I am as a subordinate in a completely different power dynamic. And, and they made it very clear to me that they were going to uh, make an example out of me. <laughs> like nobody gets favorable uh, attention or, or favorable sort of like an easy ride because wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You're part of the no, like you better be first in line and last guy out of the room and putting in the most effort because uh, nobody can be seen to be giving you a, a like an easy ride. So that was my class experience. We had 55 people. I was class 107. Uh, I would do it again. We had uh, a charmed group where we 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 surmounted um, some of those uh, obstacles that are put in your in your way. You know, the whole entire group has to you know unite together against the evil training staff that are making your life difficult, and you unite together against figuring out how to shine your boots or not forget your gun on firearms day or whatever it became. Um, we rallied and supported each other and had a great time. Um, we had people from all walks of life in our, in our, um, in our, our midst and we all gelled, uh, really well together. Um, uh, after, after I, I got through recruit crew class, you know, uh, thinking about career prospects as soon as you get in, um, I, I'm a, I'm a, a dude that comes from high-level athletics. I think my career prospects, in my mind, were canine or tactical. That was the, the two directions that I was thinking of heading right out of the gate. And uh, I think that's like a, a lot of people think that is their first <coughs> kind of go-to. That's what it used to be on all the recruiting posters. That's what I remember. Yeah, that's you know, the chopper swooping in. Dogs are going <laughs> crazy, and everybody's got like all the cool gear and stuff. So I think that's what used to be. I, I think recruiting. Strategy. Yeah, I think that was a major part of the recruiting strategy. Was was you know, uh, and I think it fits honestly. You take a bunch of people who who are student athletes, or they have this history of you know pursuing something greater than themselves, and they they watch movies and think you know this is what's popular in, in pop mm -hmm. culture and stuff, and and that's the clearest path to catch bad guys and, and playing cops and robbers and whatever else. I think when I was coming through class, like that was my kind of frame of reference. I watched all the diehard movies and <laughs> lethal weapon. And then I'm like, Oh, that's what they do. And then pretty sure I was the one who said at class there is like, uh, yeah, I signed up just to sign up to like give out the hugs and kisses. It's more for the violence. I want to drive fast cars and you know, <laughs> all those fun things. It, uh, it was, yeah, it, it was pretty, clear path for me um i relate uh I, and i know I, I exhaust you guys and just about everybody that knows me my my life is is uh referenced in in movies and movie quotes and and yeah like like in this movie this guy did this blah 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 um my my worldview was kind of framed around so part of it's my dad um it, it, despite all the drinking and the instability and a whole bunch of other stuff he had a real sense of of good and evil, right and wrong. Uh, we're not bad guys. We work hard. We're honest. Um, uh, the, and, and he, uh, celebrated, um, uh, some of my athletic heroes, uh, the, the sense of, um, collective, uh, uh, head down, work hard, um, uh, you know, true blue hero stuff that kind of shaded my early kind of perception of what it was to, to kind of be the good guys. And then, yeah, my movie consumption, whatever else. 
uh, kind of shape that. So I, I got onto a squad on the south side, um, and that brings me into my patrol time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what was really kind of again, the universe was was working in in, uh, in my favor and put me into a squad with uh, uh, a friend of mine from high school who had gone on six months earlier for me. He was from class one hundred six, and then one uh, another guy that I helped train his class from class 105 and a couple from 104. So there was a big clump of us together that all knew each other. We were, we were, um, on, on really good terms. And my boss at the time just stuck us in a car and said, go raise hell. This would be like 2006. This is 2006. Okay. Correct. Um, so in 2006 we hit the road and they, they just stuffed us in a car after I got signed off, uh, my, my, my block two, um, where you where you go out and essentially uh, you're riding with a with a we call them uh, FTO at the time and then the PTO class came in and that's your police training officer and there's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of documentation as to adult learning based sort of uh, objectives and outcomes um, in terms of teaching people how to do this job. Um, I had uh, a 26 year. At the time, she was she was 26 years on. Uh, Arlene is still up uh, taking calls. Uh, she's the longest serving uh, female police officer in Canada. Um, she was not part of. I want to be tactical. She was not part of any of that uh, culture, and so she she taught me the, uh, a lot of things uh, about policing that I will have since forgotten. Uh, she had a lot of experience in domestic uh, violence and a bunch of family uh, calls and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I had a, I had a good mix. A bunch of uh, the guys that I ended up in a squad in either went to dogs or tactical. I, I have both of those at at the roots in my squad, but I also have long-standing kind of community policing uh, gurus in in my midst as well so I that really kind of helped shape me and my secondary PTO uh, Jamie uh, he gave out that guy he did undercover work he did uh, long-term gang projects and a bunch of other stuff uh, he gave out his card so often that he had to he was I think he cost the service and the, the division the most in terms of like card printing budget because he just wanted to talk to everybody hey if you got a problem here's my card hey call me here's my card and he, that guy had generated a ton of sources just he must have taught somebody else on our team uh must have <laughs> <laughs> you know who i'm talking about yep uh-huh here's my card and so uh so now you're in patrol southwest so uh, patrol south actually this was south, this sorry. was the entire south side of the city so the the way it works is uh the whole rest of the city got chopped up into to divisions basically it was geographic uh division based um the population density per cop uh for the rest of the city was about 500 to 1 uh you have one cop for every 500 uh, residents uh in the south side of Edmonton because it was so vast and growing so rapidly we had one cop uh, for every 2500 residents we would show up for work and there'd be 25 30 35 calls on the board uh we were just blasting around with our hair on fire trying to just keep a lid on uh on the south side of town and that's that's uh right when there was a there was a a ton of uh growth on the south side, uh, 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 intermixed with uh, lower income, like it was, it was just a lot of uh, it was a bubbling cauldron, I'd say, and uh, it was in that time in my first couple of years that I was able to kind of uh, get a sense of um, gang, gang work. 
um, I, I had, um, uh, a partner at the time, the guy I went to high school with, uh, he had a, an uncanny, an unbelievable Mac. I call it speaking bad guy. He would, he would be able to show up to a call with literal killers and murderers and just talk to them. Uh, and they had this weird, he had this weird effect on, on bad guys, um, where they would just somehow relate to him and want to sit down and talk and be calm and, and just be cool. And so, uh, Mike is his name. Mike and I uh, used to just tear through the south side, and we started picking off gangsters. And um, we'd figure out where they live and what they drive, and look for them, and 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 uh, stop them constantly, and try and figure out what they were up to, and try and, and and bust these huge investigations wide open from a from a dumb patrol constable kind of uh, perspective. And I uh, I had. Um, I had, I had good experiences with a number of people, and I think my time as as the fitness guy kind of opened some doors for me in terms of uh, gave me some credibility with a bunch of older, more well established uh, uh, cops that would otherwise like, hey, like I don't know you, man, go and finish your BME report. Mm-hmm. I'd be on a at least socially, I'd be able to talk to them about, hey, how did you do this or who's this guy? And so I was able to kind of. Uh, feed that um, desire to dig and learn more. So it, it became kind of apparent early on, <clears throat> excuse me, that tactical, while still being an interest of mine, was becoming less attractive uh, in, in uh, relation or, or uh, in, in the face of what gang work was. And then canine, canine actually, uh, I had a bunch of friends who, who, dedicated their lives to that and I was disinterested with um the quarrying hours so for for listeners quarrying is essentially giving your own time and donating it to the functioning of the unit so you would be there helping I don't know wash their their cars or uh, train puppies or or be present at the kennels to put in a bunch of time and volunteer hours basically it was put towards good use and the functioning of the the unit would be um incomparably compromised i guess if that's a term yeah uh, without they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to function if they didn't have these they volunteers they couldn't but the quarry hours that you put in also uh, were put in uh to the formula for making you a, a competitive candidate and i couldn't I, I couldn't wrap my head around donating that many hours to a, something that i wasn't accepted to and i wasn't going to have a guarantee in mm-hmm. in pursuing as a career so i just i valued home life a little bit too much to risk it on something that i might not be able to 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 pursue ultimately it wasn't out in my hands and oh well i i could get on uh, a tangent about not having control about that application process um invariably i found that that your ability to speak to who you are and your character has been um, remarkably easy for me. I thought, for example, I, I thought the uh, that behavior um, and the, the personal disclosure form was going to be hard. You just get up and tell the truth. You just talk about yourself and tell the truth, and it's it's a breeze. I thought the polygraph was going to be hard. I thought I was really worried about the lie detector test. I thought, you know, what if the guy doesn't like me, or what if I is the easiest test I've ever taken? Just tell the truth and you don't have to worry about anything. It was a breeze. It was absolutely a breeze. And so that, that theme kind of followed me uh, throughout my career. I just, I, I went in front of people and said, well, this is what I'm all about. And this is what I've, I've pursued. And here's, 
here's me in my entirety. And it's, it's served me well because I've, I've, I believe I've acted with integrity and honor and hard work. So with that, uh, you've, so you've served in a bunch of roles in addition to like patrols kind of where, um, for everybody that is listening, patrols now where you kind of learn your bread and butter, your learn how to be a cop, your day-to-day cop, you're the generalist in most situations. Some guys come out of other units, come back to patrol. They got specialties that, you know, they're a little more training on, a little more prepped for. But patrols where you kind of learn all your basics, you did. So I kind of might lump a bit of these together here because they were all essentially the same thing or the beginning of the same thing. So you had, well, beats would I'll include in that, but you also had public safety compliance team and hospitality policing unit. I know some people are not going to like me saying that name on here. And now it's the gang <laughs> suppression team. Very different names. Can you kind of talk about that leading into your current position? Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, it was it was gang work was going to be uh, the, the vision. Or that was my vision for what my career was going to be. Uh, it was interesting. I had spent a year. Uh, I got injured. I played football for the the uh, the police team, and I injured myself. I tore my ACL, uh, and I was off for a year and nineteen days in my in my oh, first wait. five years. So, uh, for people listening, uh, you generally have to do two years within patrol uh, before you can move anywhere then and take any other roles. And generally, we'll find uh, cops, uh, men and women, will uh, kind of gravitate towards uh, specialization between two and five years. They'll just start to figure out what they want the early pursuits to do, mm-hmm. to be, and some people will have an idea on what they want to do going forward. And so in that two to five years, I determined, uh, you know, I think gang work is exactly what I want to do. And in order to do gang work here within uh, the EPS, you had to have a few things, a few specializations. So it, it was very favorable if you had the uh, covert surveillance course. And you only get that course by being valuable within the division to a special uh, project team. So it's a plainclothes unit that, that does a, a variety of uh, investigations that are, that are plainclothes and covert based. And so uh, the project team was, was my next step and my, my next kind of career pursuit within the division. So that's essentially kind of your path. And at that time, when I was just becoming eligible for that application, to go down the project team route uh, in in old South Division, and then it split to Southeast and Southwest. At about five years, everybody had to do a year or a stint either on the front desk or up in comms or down in cells, in the cell block. And everybody, they just took a rotation, and then every squad donated these people. I saw it as purgatory. It was awful. You take these these cops, these men and women, and they're, they're right at the prime of their figuring stuff out, and then they have to go inside and, and live in a dungeon for a year or whatever it is. And I was particularly motivated because I had spent that year and 19 days non-operational. I worked in our pawn detail at that time, helping out the pawn guys and the detectives in the back. And I had felt like I was already on the shelf for so long and my name was about to come up for one of these kind of uh, non, non-operational roles. And that was, was really not favorable. Uh, and I, I, I didn't want, I, of course I'd be, I, I work in a paramilitary organization. So I, do it but I wanted to find a path to avoid that to be honest um, 
And the salvation there, the luck, as luck would have it, a whole bunch of uh, guys from my squad and a bunch of guys that I knew in the service had gone and worked White Avenue Beats. And White Avenue Beats is, at the time, the 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 premier kind of entertainment destination for the entire city. You go to White Avenue, uh, and and all the bars and nightclubs were were existing in a in a like a five block strip. Then mm-hmm. we would go north and south one block each uh, direction. And so I had spent a bunch of time uh, filling in and doing overtime up there and, and working the crazy. And my, my experience with bars and nightclubs in my, my pre-policing life. And before that, uh, also, uh, after I came out of school, I worked in group homes uh, for a period of time while, while I was also back here in town. Um, and so it just, it was a natural fit for me to be able to work up there. So right at the time when I was getting set to try and campaign for my suitability for project team, um, there was a, a, a horrible accident that occurred at the, uh, w- involving one of the project teams and they, uh, the, the, the executive at the time suspended all project teams across the entire service. They nuked the project teams right when I was about to, to apply. And the, uh, my, my division was the last division to get the project teams back. Uh, the operation, like as far as the numbers go, they just couldn't make it work. So it was getting later and later and later into uh, uh, my potential purgatory, into the, the front desk or whatever it became, and, and a, a beats uh, position came available. And I applied for it. I thought... I, I think I will, uh, it will be detrimental to my career to be in cells or up in comms or whatever for a period of time. So I said, okay, beats are, beats are, uh, uh, they're, they're, it's, it's good policing that happens there. I can get behind a whole bunch of, uh, the initiatives up there. My skill set was, was perfectly matched for it. So I applied, I got the position <clears throat> and then two weeks after that, two weeks after I got the beats position, it came and uh, it was announced that uh, my division was going to get a project team. Uh-huh. And so <laughs> I went back to my inspector at the time, uh, uh, inspector Rocchio at the time. Uh, and I, 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 kind of made an appointment with him and I said, okay, I, I am grateful for this opportunity with Beats, but my whole career path is kind of structured towards the project team and, and, and the gang and drugs. And, and he's, I guess I can summarize his response as, well, yeah, I can appreciate that. And it's wonderful that you have those career goals, but you did make a commitment and you made a commitment and you did kind of make a commitment and you took a spot uh, and you committed to this. It's totally your choice if you want to pull your name from the beat spot that you committed to for the opportunity to maybe apply to the project team. But you did make a commitment and you made a commitment and it's your choice. So, uh, yeah, but... <clears throat> Yeah, I said, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. I'll, I'll look forward to working on Beats. Thank you. <laughs> so Beats is your kind of transition into through all these and other so, units. Uh, with Beats, I, I naturally fell into the role during the daytime. There's a ton of uh, homeless youth. Um, there's a bunch of uh, youth serving services on in the White Avenue area. So during the daytime, I was the youth guy. I was essentially the designated youth guy, the de facto youth guy. All the kids knew me, and I had a great relationship with a, a bunch of the uh, homeless youth shelters and the, some of the outreach programs. And then during the nighttime, 
because of my bar experience and crowd control and, and managing bad guys that were trying to hurt people, I became the gang guy in the bars and nightclubs uh, at night. And Was there any, at this time, what year would this have been? Uh, this was 2010. So was there anybody else doing that type of work in 2010? So this is before I got here. So correct. I'm not too sure. Yeah, what correct. Was so at that time, so uh, at that time, right around the 2008, 2009, 2010 timeline, and a little bit before, um, the city had a rash of um, nightclub violence. Um, at that time, it was centered around the Jamaican community and the Caribbean community, who have a, a strong uh, uh, um, presence in the nightclub time scene here um and a lot of bars ended up getting shut down because they had shootings and people get murdered all over the place and so they couldn't adhere mm -hmm. the people throwing those parties couldn't adhere or wouldn't adhere to the rules and started so they started having jamaican hall parties and uh, reggaeton or or a bunch of different types of caribbean inspired themed nights that ended in gunfire and a whole bunch of other stuff so this all kind of took place on white ave this was around this was around the entire city. city. This okay. was citywide. So when you're on beats, how do you go from beats doing gang type work at nights to gang suppression team? So it just so happened that that around this time between 2007 and 2010, the city recognized both between these these hall parties and this violence and uh, the rave scene started really really picking up and we had a bunch of really unfortunate tragic deaths due to overdose and some uh, not being aware and alive to how to police and how to uh, offer services to people that are taking rave drugs and dancing themselves to death mm -hmm. over six eight hours so that that was the genesis of what was called the public safety compliance team at, at that time. The city took a look at it and the EPS took a look at, at the, the conditions and said, how do we not see this coming? And so uh, the, the, that was the genesis of a unit called the public safety compliance team, which was uh, um, led and facilitated by an EPS sergeant. And it was a multi-denominational, uh, multi-jurisdictional team of partner agencies. So City of Edmonton contributed uh, uh, members to the public safety compliance team, members of uh, AGLC, which is our liquor control and gaming, and uh, Edmonton Fire uh, Services all collaboratively came together and tried to uh, regulate and monitor the entertainment and industry and the hospitality industry at that, at that time. And so... Uh, there was there was one EPS person dedicated to that, and and that came down to uh, regulatory um, action against a bunch of bar and honestly uh, relationship building with a bunch of uh, um, uh, industry stakeholders. Uh, so bar owners, managers, a whole bunch of other stuff would all be pipelined through uh, the public safety compliance team. And right at that time, so there's, again, this, this universe-bending kind of confluence of factors. It just so happened at uh, about the same time in 2008, um, both Vancouver and Calgary were experiencing almost identical rates of public violence. So it, it, I'll get into it a little bit later about the history of, of uh, the formation of our gangs and, and how some of the gang violence manifests. But it just so happened at this time. Yeah, it's on the list. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll get into it a bit later on that side. Yeah, so. you bet. And so um, uh, what, what I can say, though, is that the response from those different police agencies and those municipalities was to form dedicated units for gang suppression mm -hmm. and to 
lobby for legislation that helped um, municipal uh, police forces deal with the presence of gangsters who would their their presence would then beget gang related violence or gang motivated violence. So um, there was a, a law put onto the books in Alberta uh, in two thousand and nine. It was it was under Section sixty nine point one of the Gaming and Liquor Act. It was the gang legislation. So it essentially says for your listeners. Mm-hmm. It essentially says um, gang members uh, go to uh, liquor license premises uh, and and they either are the targets of violence or they commit violence uh, through no fault of their own or through the very nature of, of what they're participating in. And a police officer, on good faith belief that a person is a member of or a facilitator or in the company of a gang member or a gang associate, can exclude or remove that person from a liquor license premise uh, anywhere in Alberta. <clears throat> and so Calgary, the Calgary Police Service uh, lobbied for that uh, to be entered into uh, 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 um, the law went on the books, I think in 2009, it was sent forward to a constitutional lawyer and got drafted up and got uh, put on the books. The EPS didn't immediately start enforcing that law. Um, we wanted to see kind of the, the risk and liability of how to how to ensure we were adhering to the, the central tenets of the law. But regardless, um, at that time, uh, uh, the EPS decided that they were going to have a, um, a mechanism for identifying gang members that were eligible for ejection under that legislation, and then it would be sort of fanned out to uh, police officers that were likely to encounter these gang members in, in liquor license premises. So it went from the from organized crime section, it got uh, pipelined through the public safety compliance team at that time, who then filtered it down to the beat cops that were operating on White Avenue and Jasper Avenue, West Edmonton Mall. And we were brought into the, um, the fold to start to figure out which gang members these are and what kind of uh, threats of, of public violence and intimidation that these guys would would carry with them. And so I got essentially um, identified early on by the compliance team as, oh, this guy, not only is he really, really uh, tuned in and dialed in within bars and nightclubs, but my earlier interest in gang work uh, led to this kind of perfect storm of not only do I love to hunt these gangsters and have some sort of effect on them, but it was also within my wheelhouse and the, uh, under the purview of, of what my daily responsibilities were, which was these bars and nightclubs mm-hmm. in, in the White Avenue area. And so we we enacted and, and, and acted on and enforced that legislation to a great degree of success on White Avenue in the White Ave area and then collaboratively across the entire service. Uh, and I, I got um, earmarked really as one of the guys who was a, a forerunner in terms of uh, understanding this legislation. And it just so happened at that time that the public safety compliance team was, uh, was had increased, uh, had been granted an increase in their staffing level because there was just so much work to do. There was right at that time, there was a, a bunch of uh, non-compliance from venues across the city. There were shootings happening all over the place. There was emerging new places kind of all over the place. So they were staffing up, and I got approached to put in my application for the compliance team, and that was in 2012. And so uh, my role within the compliance team uh, uh, well, uh, was to facilitate the, the regulatory and relationship building um, uh, kind of 
central tenants of the compliance team. I was also um, handed a portfolio, essentially, of this gang suppression work, this early gang suppression work. And it just took off from there. So I started to try to uh, standardize um, the... uh, the documentation uh, for for how we were going to um, um, kind of identify, really or identify select and select who we're talking individuals. To. So we would we would form a relationship with the inspector in charge of organized crime branch. I was relentless in my presence up on the third floor, uh, and and every every one of the gang investigators knew me by name. I would ride along with them. I had a history of of I I guess organizational credibility. Uh, with focusing on these gangsters anyway, um, I would just do it in a very different fashion. So where the the vast majority of gang work um, that was happening in the city at that time was was uh, plain closed and covert and source based, I would walk right up to gangsters and say, "Hey, you're a gang member. Time to go." And we would uh, garner uh, compliance and intelligence and sources and a whole bunch of other sort of aspects of of the. The, the fundamental building blocks of, of organized crime investigation just by being the sheriff of my small town, the, being the beat cop in the know right there. Yeah, everything has its place, right? Like there's a time for the surveillance, there's a time for doing the covert aspect, and then there's a time for, like, we want to know who this person is right now, we're going to go up and talk to them. The overt uh, part of it is is severely underrepresented in movies and in in uh, police work in general. Um, and we get so caught up in the um, the the habit of surveilling somebody until you figure out who they are when it's just as meritous and just as effective, sometimes more so to uh, be overt in your policing attention. It just, it, it's the left hand and the right hand working together. If, if you've got an agency that's really, really dialed in, you can use both to great effect. Where one is uh, insufficient in the time and place as, uh, in terms of satisfying the needs, uh, uh, you, can, you can apply both in equal proportions or in, in relative proportions to what the, the needs are for the community. And it's, uh, it was something that I, I'm a recognizable figure. I'm a, I'm a, uh, a big, bald billboard for, for uh, anti-violence campaigns. And by that time, I had had my face in, in the media and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I wasn't uh, delicate and I wasn't covert. There was nothing undercover about me. I was always um, uh, uh, fair and equitable in my approach. I was always uh, professional in my uh, communication with these guys, and I was building a reputation. It was like building a brand. You know what to expect uh, when Ferry walks in the room versus when other gang investigators were dealing with you in in seedy back alleys or wherever. Mm -hmm. Um, So what does that look like now for it was now called the gang suppression team, and what... What does your job entail and what does that kind of look like from what we're just talking about with how you interact with these guys on a day-to-day basis? We're doing the overt suppression type work, not the covert. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, it, it went through a, a number of iterations. We had, we had uh, proposed a violent crime suppression team very much like Calgary started out. We put that paper forward in 2014 and that was right on the front end of these rising violence rates. So for a number of different factors, we were having uh, public shooting and, and murders. And um, we were getting out of, in 2011, Edmonton was uh, deemed 
uh, Stadminton or Deadminton. We had the record high homicide rates. And um, we were transitioning away from um, people that were coming from uh, a knife culture and moving towards a gun culture within our criminal underworld and our, our gangsters in particular. Um, so we put forward a, this this uh, paper in 2014, and it just wasn't resourcing for it. And then 2015, well, uh, December of 2014, there was a really, really public prominent homicide at uh, Hudson's downtown that's no longer in operation. Um, a really prominent uh, gang figure uh, got shot and killed right in the front doors. Um, and that... that uh, 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 it ended up having some follow-on homicide investigations for the suspect. Ended up dead out of town, um, so it it became really really public, and um, a bunch of uh, uh, stakeholders within the entertainment community made a ton of noise about we need some help here. You can't regulate us into getting rid of this violence problem. So you can give me a ticket all you want if you tell me that the worst people in Edmonton gun toting murderers are trying to come to my club and then you're telling me to keep them away it, it ain't gonna happen jack we need help and can you dedicate some police resources so uh fundamentally the eps um was uh you know fortunately listening to their their stakeholders and some of the the, the experts in the field in western canada were saying overt is the way to go in combination with some other efforts. And so uh, the gang suppression team uh, uh, was was uh, given rise out of what was at the time hospitality policing unit. Hospitality policing unit was essentially, you do all of the violence suppression and spe- uh, specifically and narrowly focus it on entertainment uh, venues. So if, mm-hmm. it, it, if it was somewhere where people could go and drink or dance or high five or whatever, there was an elevated risk uh, to the public, and there was a, a, a necessity to police in those areas because of the one, the population density, two, um, the 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 volatility of the crowd due to alcohol intoxication or drug uh, consumption, um, three, the the public facing, like the image of the city when you had people that are going out to try and have a good time and watch Oilers games or whatever, and and you had to worry about getting mowed down or whatever it became. Uh, reputationally for the city um, and for the sentiment of, of safety and security was was fairly important. So so that team got staffed up in 2015 and we proved to be so effective at not only generating intelligence that would then um, um, supplement investigative, covert investigative efforts, uh, but in, um, in and of itself, um, having an immediate social effect and an immediate social consequence on these gangster gang guys uh was was having uh, a downstream behavioral effect on uh both these particular gangs uh gang members uh subjects of interest but also affected their ability to recruit into their their criminal networks it affected their uh um uh, their their lives so much that we saw a, a change in their behavior in future years in in uh, years after they became subjects of of, of this gang legislation. Mm-hmm. So, um, born out of that, in just the entertainment venues, I think a lot of people within the police service and and uh, externally from our section started to realize, oh, okay, uh, not only is there an immediate uh, value 
to investigative efforts. So, uh, for example, if, if you had gang members that were causing problems within the community, uh, a very typical uh, kind of path to interrupting that gang uh, 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 operations would be to conduct like a drug investigation or some sort of criminal investigation that would, the genesis would be some sort of source information or, or whatever it is that the police can bring to bear. And then you would surveil them and, and build grounds and evidence. There would be search warrants and wiretaps and a whole bunch of other stuff. But all of that takes a lot of time. And, and money and, and resources. Money and resources. And while all that's happening in the background, these gangsters are still doing gangster stuff. And, and if somebody decides on that day at that time they're going to settle a score or they come across their rivals or uh, there's, there's somebody that has to go right now, there's, there's rarely the ability to um, uh, uh, prevent um, overt acts of violence associated with gang members. And what we were doing was, was having both a, uh, an immediate impact on their social lives, but we were also having a, a displacement effect as well. So a lot of our prominent gang figures just stopped going out in bars and nightclubs. And by virtue of them not being there, that was an immediate improvement to public safety because while you might get into a bar fight because you stepped on some guy's Nikes, um, you weren't going to get shot in the face uh, from somebody that had done it before, very likely had done it before, and, and has people willing to prove themselves and their loyalty to the gang or the criminal network or whatever. So within the gang suppression team, um, uh, the, uh, the EPS moved the hospitality policing unit to the gang, uh, to organized crime section in 2019 and expanded the, the, the role of what would then be the gang suppression team. So it wasn't just focused on bars and nightclubs. It was, uh, it was the, the gang suppression team was tasked with identifying prominent gang groups that were causing community harm. And we would apply overt policing tactics and suppression initiatives, um, uh, wherever these gang members were having an effect on the community. So whether it's a, uh, a prominent nightclub or Rogers Arena or, or a, a, a trap house, a crack house in, in Northside or Southside Edmonton, it didn't really matter. We were able to follow uh, wherever that gang members and their, their associates were going. And that, that, had, uh, that had a couple of downstream effects. But um, in terms of uh, mission clarity... Um, the, the gang suppression team strives to, one, uh, generate intelligence on these groups because really um, you see so much more when you physically and, and, and uh, directly interact with these uh, gangsters. It's one thing to surveil them, and there's a ton of value um, with uh, receiving source information. Uh, there, there's a ton of uh, intel that needs to be interpreted and, and sifted through. There's a bunch of data there. Uh, but we can also make a lot of inferences about power dynamics and uh, loyalty and uh, subservience and who's got money and who's paying with cash and who's paying with uh, credit cards and uh, group structure and dynamics. Uh, you can get uh, vehicles. Um, you can... You, you can uh, you can, can basically extract expand on the whole social so network much of, more on the, the yeah. social network. That's exactly right. And so you can fill in a lot of the gaps into to how these groups operate and who is likely going to be um, a shot caller within that group, which then uh, leads you so, to some, some unique investigative decisions down the road. Uh, and, and, and it really fills in the, the picture for the courts after the fact. Uh, whereas before, uh, these guys could claim, what? We just know each other from school. We just happen to be in the same 
restaurant together at the same time. It's by happenstance. No, I, I saw your bill. You guys ordered, uh, you know, uh, uh, soup together, and you were, you were drinking shots all night long, and, and you paid cash, and you got the, the girls into the cab, and you guys all left together. So it, it, it paints a better picture for uh, prosecution after the fact mm-hmm. um, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, this, this knowledge and this, this uh uh, familiarity within uh, group members or, or group members or between members within a group. So um, can you talk a bit about, um, talk about like the capacity of the team? So how many people we have, what we kind of work on day to day or who we might work with? Cause we work with pretty much every unit under the sun, including several other police agencies. Like people will task us with things or well, not task us, but, They'll ask us for help from other cities, and we interact with them on almost a daily basis. So the EPS, um, on top of, in organized crime section, they've got a number of investigative units that are working uh, different drug angles, so uh, drug investigative teams, uh, cannabis team, uh, drug experts. Uh, We have one gang suppression team. It's staffed by uh, seven constables and myself. Um, In a qualitative analysis of gang um, membership in gang activity and gang violence, we can say that there are roughly, at any given time, there's probably between 12 and 13 shooter groups at any given time. There's not one particular gang conflict that is fueling um, this this uh, community harm via uh, indiscriminate shootings. There's not like one gang-controlled neighborhood that you see mm-hmm. on the movies like, oh, you don't want to get shot? Don't go down to the projects or yeah. whatever it becomes. Yeah. That's the vernacular in in, in uh, this kind of the, the social media and, and pop culture. What Edmonton has is um, is depending on socioeconomic um, sort of origins of the group. So there are like some stereotypical down on their luck, no options other than to band together sort of uh, super low socioeconomic kind of gang groups and street gangs derived out of poverty and desperation and and generational uh, sort of suffering. Uh, people that have legitimately very, very few options to get themselves out of the circumstance. There, There's a heavy amount of gang presence and street gang presence within some of those segments of society. But they are not uh, regulated or relegated to particular kind of geographical areas mm-hmm. within the city. There's no, like, one gang-controlled neighborhood for it. Like, where you see, oh, that guy, that group has this graffiti tag on these blocks, and that's their gang-controlled neighborhood. It doesn't exist here. Mm-hmm. It's not that way. And so um, through the through the use of um, mobility and technology, our gang groups um, essentially ply their trade across the entire city. And uh, through a variety of... of factors uh we rarely have gangsters that are um uh loyal to one group for the rest of their lives on the on the high end and the low end so on our low end we have um indigenous street gangs indigenous based street gangs that are are super loyal to the brand they'll get it tattooed all over their bodies and they'll wear the the clothing and they'll get their kids to to represent those those uh, different gang groups you have you have those groups that are 
uh, in it for life, and they uh, identify and adopt one particular gang group. And then on the upper end, we have the outlaw motorcycle gangs and the biker gangs that are uh, loyal in almost the exact same proportion. You get guys that go through years and years and years of that quarrying that I spoke about mm-hmm. earlier to get on with these big clubs, and then they identify for the rest of their lives, and they, they represent that group. In the middle of all of that, thousands and thousands of young men typically aged between the ages of like 17 to 34 these young men are attracted to the criminal lifestyle enjoy the fast money and the violence and the notoriety um uh, of being involved in this this seedy kind of gangsterism i will call it they form these these criminal networks and these loose criminal associations where they will remain familiar with each other and in business with each other, depending on their, their availability and their resources, uh, throughout their, their early adulthood. And at any given time, they can switch allegiances and uh, sell each other out or to, uh, to, to, they will, um, uh, pirate on each other's uh, uh, drug lines and gang li- there, there is so much volatility within our uh, gang landscape so that- with that though like so you're saying there's thousands of gang members in in Edmonton at any given time when Correct. you go right Correct. from the street level um, all the way through full-on organized crime there could be a thousand plus people somewhere involved either full members associates still maybe doing something on the periphery, you know, aiding and abetting type. That's correct. Helping them out, giving them a place to crash while they're doing their dirt. But that's for seven constables and a sergeant. That's correct. And so when you talk about scope, uh, we, we've conducted some, some quantitative analysis in terms of uh, what, what the challenges are in front of us. Uh, at any given time, there's between two and 3,000 uh, individuals that are involved in, in what we would consider gang crime a- across the city. And that's, the, that's primarily focused on Edmonton, but it's also, it, it really is the greater Edmonton area. Mm-hmm. And so understand geographically, Edmonton's a bit unique in that we have a population just under a million proper, I think, in the last census. But the bedroom communities, all within like 15 minutes drive of Edmonton, uh, the proximity uh, to Edmonton and the likelihood that people are, are traveling and commuting into Edmonton is, is uh, disproportionately high in comparison to, say, Calgary with some of their bedroom communities, which are a little bit further out. Uh, the, the greater Edmonton area... Uh, bumps our our population uh, base up to about 1.3 uh, million mm-hmm. in comparison to what we're funded for as far as policing goes. We're also the hub for Grand Prairie, Fort McMurray, correct? The territories, even out into Prince George, we know some of the guys that we deal with and that we talk to. This is the hub to drive through, fly through, bring everything here, and then it goes on to bigger and better places, I guess. Correct. And then when you factor in the prison population around Edmonton, and we have mm-hmm. the, the max and the remand and the, the, we have uh, in the, in the uh, exiting prison programs as well, a lot of gang affiliated individuals, either uh, they became gang affiliated on, on the inside or are transitioning through the judicial, judicial system, the penal system, they end up coming out without a whole lot of prospects. And so uh, the gang involved individuals are, are probably around 3000. 
um, and seven constables, even within the broader uh, structure of the organized crime branch, which has a number of investigative units and alert. Um, it, it bears mentioning that uh, alert Alberta uh, uh, ha- has, I, I think, five alert teams. The EPS uh, contributes a, a significant amount of resources towards alert, and alert really um, uh, investigates more sophisticated, more advanced, more serious kind of organized crime files, and they have a, a ton of success in doing so. But the overt stuff isn't happening at anywhere other than the gang suppression team and a bunch of street cops who also essentially come from the same roots that you and I come from is we're going to focus on bad guys doing bad guy things to people. So I'm going to pause you there. Uh, we got a few more things to talk about, but we're going to have to do that in a second episode. So we're going to get into like the whole history of gangs, the violence here in the city, some of the current trends, um, some of the groups involved in this stuff. And then we'll talk a little bit about the gang intervention strategies, some of the stuff that you teach on now. Yeah, absolutely. Professor Ferry. Okay, so <laughs> thanks for joining me for this episode, and we'll have you back here shortly. You bet. Okay.